Hello, all you beautiful people. Welcome to Beyond the Mat. Hey, yo, welcome to Beyond the Mat, where it's all about the things and stuff. It's like this and like that, sitting in a lotus seat. We breathe deep from our heads to our feet till we feel inner heat. A little bit of rhythm for your soul. Stretching out your minds from your head to your toes. We in our flow state, we don't know no hate. We end up feeling great though, so, so we, we correlate. Coil snake gonna rise sunshine. We take our time to appreciate divine grace. It takes place in a pace in the inner states. From a country road down to the interstate. We contemplate this, we here to make this. We here to break this, but we never fake this. We never hate kids, we in the love vibe. Me and my whole tribe, we gonna try to be fly with the sunshine. Today's show is brought to you by www.neverbingeagain.com. Head on over and download the book of the same name, Never Binge Again. And folks, the ebook is for free. Or you can also buy the physical copy. I prefer physical copies myself. I like having something real, something tangible with texture that I can hold in my hand. You know, physical books, they don't get accidentally deleted. Physical books don't disappear when you buy a new computer. Physical books, yeah, they take up paper, I know, and that's a sad aspect of it, but it's not sad when that book has been read so many times that every page is doggy-eared and it's been passed from person to person and has helped them achieve a healthier life. As the title implies, this book can help you with your binge eating and making it a thing of the past. Today's show is also brought to you by, of course, me and my new book, We are all about books here beyond the mat and what happens beyond the mat in my house. Meditation happens, happens right before the yoga happens. And lately I've been doing Tai Chi. I found this lady online who has some amazing beginner classes for a noob like myself. And Tai Chi is a moving meditation. Unfortunately, it's so new in my life that it did not make it into my book this time around. So maybe next time, the book is called How to Calm the Fuck Down. You can purchase the ebook for only $5 on my website, jcoleyoga.ca. And pre-order a physical copy that will be mailed right to your door as soon as they are printed. If you don't have a door, maybe you live in a van doing the van life thing. I will go out of my way to make sure it gets to you somewhere along your trip as long as there is mailing information attached to the purchase order. So quickly, once again, folks, neverbingeagain.com and jcoleyoga.ca, two great books with a wealth of information on living a better life, a sustainable life, a happy life. Today's guest and author of Never Binge Again, Dr. Glenn Livingston is a psychologist specializing in diets and nutrition and how the psychology of binge eating can become a thing of the past. Dr. Glenn's research has been featured in publications such as the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago, ooh, slipped on the Chicago word there, the Chicago Sun-Times, must be the wind in Chicago, throwing my, throwing my tongue around. The Indiana Star-Ledger, the New York Daily News, American Demographics, ABC, WGN, CBS Radio, or UPTN-TVN, many, many, many more. So, as you may have guessed, 
we are talking about weight loss and how the world affects our choices and how we can change those choices through a little technique that Dr. Glenn has developed. But hey, I'm not going to spoil the show. You've got to listen to find out. Ladies and gentlemen, after a personal journey of obesity and coming out of it and into a new healthier self, sharing this with the world, please make some noise for Dr. Glenn Livingston. So welcome, Dr. Glenn. Can I call you Dr. Glenn? Of course you can. (laughs) All right. Uh, Welcome to the show, Beyond the Mat. Uh, dealing with all the things that happen beyond our yoga mats. And you are here today talking about, so diets and nutrition, I believe, is kind of uh, your expertise. My, my expertise is in the things that seem to overwhelm our free will and determination to eat well and be and be present, and to eat beyond our, our own best judgment. Okay. I, I work with overeaters and binge eaters, and there's actually a very strong relationship between overeating and a lot of what goes on in yoga. We can get into that later, too. <laughs> so more of getting to the root cause of... What, more over, more bang for the buck, yeah. There right. You go. Not, not trying to cover it up with a, with a Band-Aid approach, as, as all the, the trends kind of try to do to everybody. Well, well I'm a practitioner. I, I, I have a yoga practice, so... I'm, I know firsthand. <laughs> I mean, for uh, for weight loss, though, it's more of getting to the root cause of like the issues, not trying to. That, that, that's true. Cover but up the root cause that. is not what you think, right? So I'll, I'll I'll go whichever direction you want to go here, but um, <laughs> I could. Yeah, I would, a little bit of. I would definitely like to know because um, you had mentioned right before we re- started recording here, you had mentioned your own journey. Um, and how that is kind of what catapulted this whole thing into existence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm not just a psychologist. I'm, I'm someone who had a very serious binge eating problem myself. Okay. You would have called it exercise bulimia if they had that diagnosis back then. Okay. But when, when I was 17 or so, I thought I discovered a superpower, <laughs> which was I'm 6'4 and reasonably muscular, and if I worked out a lot, you know, two and a half, three hours a day, Right. I could eat whatever I wanted to. Right. And I, yeah. And you said 17 years old. When I was 17 years so, old. Yeah. yeah. I think we all had that same kind of <laughs> mindset when, when we were that young. <laughs> I know I sure did. Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as like a slimmer build gentleman, I, you know, yeah. I could, I could put away a whole pizza and nothing would happen to me. Uh, my yeah. grandfather used to joke. He said that boy had two hollow legs. That's where all his food's going. Uh, I, I could put away a whole pizza back then too. Yeah. And a box of Pop Tarts and six chocolate bars and a box of munchkins on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the problem was when I got a little older and right. I got into Yep. So I got into graduate school and I couldn't work out that much time because I was commuting a few hours and I was married and I had patients. And I couldn't stop eating. I just couldn't. I was still eating six to ten thousand calories a day. Wow. And I was thinking about it all the time, yeah thinking about it all the time and it was a problem for me a serious problem for me on several levels first of all because I was getting fat secondly because my blood levels were awful my triglycerides were over 1100 at one point the doctors were telling me that I was probably going to die by the time I was 30 or 35 there was so much risk in my family that I was really playing Russian roulette and more importantly being a psychologist has always been very important to me and for my 
family of 17 therapists. And I, I couldn't be present in the moment with my clients. I mean, I never lost anybody. I worked with suicidal people. Right. But I couldn't be present, and we're not 100% present. I'd be sitting and thinking, well, when, when can I get to the deli, or when can I get a box of snack wells, or, <laughs> you know. And it really, really bothered me. And I, I was a very successful doctor anyway, but it really bothered me. And so being from a family of psychologists and having all the psychological background and knowing the best psychologist in New York, I grew up in and around New York City. Okay. I, w- I went to see some of the best people. And I went to Overdue's Anonymous and I went to a psychiatrist to take medication. At one point, I even ran a 40,000 person study. I've had a dual career. I don't have kids and I never commuted. So I was also consulting for industry and actually kind of feel like I was on the wrong side because I was working with a bunch of big food companies. Okay. And um, I wanted to figure out what it was psychologically that was eating people. Like what, which foods were related to which emotional conflict? That was my hypothesis back then. It's not, it's not what you're eating, it's what's eating you. Oh, okay. and I gotcha. So I get this 40,000 person study back and it took many years in the days when the internet clicks were cheap, but still we got a lot of people. <laughs> I looked at the data and we saw a couple of interesting relationships. First of all, people who started their binges on chocolate, like I always did, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. People who started their binges on salty, crunchy things like pretzels and chips, they tend to be stressed at work. Mm-hmm. And people who started their binges on soft, chewy, starchy things like bagels and bread or muffins, they tended to be stressed at home. Huh. And I, you know, they weren't perfect correlations, but I still thought they were really interesting. Right. And and so I thought, okay, well, maybe this is the clue. This, maybe this is what I've been looking for. So I have trouble with chocolate. I, I was in a bad marriage, and I was kind of lonely and brokenhearted. But at the same time, I wanted to ask my mom, who was also a therapist and raised me, if there was any significant thing about my history that would have led to this relationship. And she got this awful look on her face. She got this awful sound on her voice, awful look on her face. She said, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> I said, Mom, what is it? And she said, well, when you were about one year old, your dad was in the army. My husband, your dad was in the army. And I was just terrified we were going to take him to Vietnam. He was the captain, and they were taking captains over. And even if they had a kid, they were taking them over. And I was terrified. Hmm. And at the same time, my father, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison. And I had adored this man my whole life, and I didn't know he was doing these things. And I was just devastated. My whole world fell apart. And so when you came crying to me and you wanted to be held or rocked or, or even fed, I didn't always have the wherewithal to do it. So here's what I did. I, I got a little refrigerator and I kept it on the floor and I put a bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup in there. <laughs> and I would tell you, Glenn, go get your Bosco. You come running crying to me and I say, go get your Bosco. And you go running over to the refrigerator and you take out the Bosco and you suck on the bottle and go into a chocolate sugar coma. Right. Right. And, and so, Jay, if this was the movies, yeah. Ma- Mom and I would have a good cry and I'd never have trouble, trouble with chocolate again, right? Right. But it's not. Oh, I mean, we'd forgive, we'd forgive each other, we'd have a good cry. And, <laughs> and we did forgive each other, and I learned an awful lot about Mom, and I forgave myself. I felt a lot more compassionate towards myself about my problem. 
But you know, my problem actually got worse. I actually started eating more chocolate and then binging more and gaining more weight. Now, was it because you knew that the chocolate was going to work for you? Is that why you continued using it as as like a well, med- as like, almost like a medicine, or it just it, at this point it was uh, almost subconscious? Like like it's been. I, it was a little more subconscious at that point, but I, I'm going to address that point about self medicating in a moment. Okay. What what I the reason that I kept using it was because there was this little voice in my head that said something like, hey, you know, Glenn, you're right. Your mama didn't love you enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. <laughs> and right. until you can find the love of your life, you're going to have to go right on binging. You can fix the marriage or find the love of your life. You're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Let's go get some now. Okay. And that wasn't exactly what it says, but, yeah. but basically there was this voice of rationalization and justification. And what I learned was that it didn't really matter that I found the emotional connection. I mean, it did on a soulful level. It was a good conversation to have. And I felt better about myself as a person. Myself and Steve improved. I felt like things weren't my fault. But in terms of solving the problem, it didn't really matter. Right. What, yeah. Okay. What, so, so I said, hmm, so maybe being a detective is not really what's going to do it. Then I went back to thinking, this this addresses your point about self-medication. Then I went back to thinking about, well, what's actually going on in food addiction? And I went back to the research that I'd done and the work that I'd done for the big food companies. And I remembered that they're engineering these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and stimulants. And, and they're spending billions of dollars to do that. They're spending billions of dollars to package it up in a way that makes it look healthy. I remember an executive at one of the food bar manufacturers telling me that their product took off when they took the vitamins out of the bar and made the, put the money into making the packaging look healthy instead. <laughs> so it, wow. <laughs> right. And, and, and so the advertising industry is really good at making you feel like you need it. Oh. The food industry gives you all this stimulation without enough nutrition to make you feel satisfied. And then the addiction treatment industry says that you can't quit even if you want to. You can only abstain one day at a time because you're, you're powerless over that. Right. And then I said, well, so that's not, I don't know if I'm really just self-medicating. I think it's, it's more than self-comforting because there's, there is an analgesic effect of, overstimulating the digestive system. When your body is overrun and at war with food that doesn't really belong in there, it's harder for your nervous system to conduct the emotions. And so you you do get a kind of comfort, it's more like a numbing comfort. Right. But there's something else going on there. See, there's also an artificial concentration of pleasure that evolution didn't prepare us for. There were no chocolate bars in the savannah. There were no potato chips on the savannah. There were no. There was no pizza on the savannah. No, I mean, and, once in a while you'd find a sweet potato, maybe if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's that's true. That's true. But but it wasn't so, it wasn't enough to overindulge yourself with, right? Like I mean, even someone right. who happened upon a, a an apple tree, you could only eat so many apples, and you can only carry so many with you before exactly you know you get sick and be like well don't want apples ever again um yeah so okay <laughs> exactly and 
So then I went to look at all the mammalian studies and what happens if you short circuit the pleasure mechanisms in the brain. Like if you if you make it possible for an animal to self-stimulate their pleasure center without the normal work and effort that's necessary to, to get to the pleasure. So like if you because if you take the apple and you remove all the fiber and the skin and you just concentrate the sugar in the apple right. and you present it to people that are capable of eating about eight, you know, the sugar that's from eight apples mm. um, in a quarter of the time that it would take them to eat the sugar in one apple if they did it the normal way. So some of the, this is not necessarily a fair analogy, but it closed. There are a bunch of studies done in the late 50s and 60s done by this doctor named Milner and Olds, and, and, and then they're replicated across other experimenters later on. But basically what they found was that if they take an electrode and they put it in the pleasure center of a rat's brain, for example, that that rat suddenly, and, and they, they link that electrode to a lever so that the rat can self-stimulate, that rat wants to do nothing but press that button thousands of times per day. And if the rat happens to be a nursing mother rat, she will push her pups away and abandon her nursing pups in order to push that button thousands of times a day. For the sugar. Rattle, for the sugar. Well right. well or whatever. This is an electrical stimulation in, into the into the pleasure center, but same right. thing. Right. Hmm. A, a starving rat will crawl over a painful electrical grid to do the same thing. Wow. So what we're and, and, and they'll starve to death if you don't take it away from them. <laughs> so what this what this says is that when we're provided with supersized stimuli that overstimulate our pleasure button, we're very prone to ignore our survival drives. And I, I think this is why people say they just don't like fruit or vegetables. Right? You know, and people say I could never get things I don't like fruit or vegetables. It's because industry has hijacked our survival drive. I mean, no, they're not putting electrodes in our brain and giving us that kind of pleasure button, but is it really that far a cry to say that they're doing something close when there are all these billions of dollars spent and you can walk out of a McDonald's on one street corner and see another one across the street? I, I, I think yeah. we're getting close. Yeah, and we have like uh, we have dollar stores on every corner here, and I mean, for I think they're like 25 cents now you can get a chocolate bar. So you're not just going to buy one chocolate bar, you're going to buy probably 10 chocolate bars and you're going to put them in a drawer at home and say, I'm not going to eat these. These will last me all month. And then by the end of the night, you've eaten them all. (laughs) You and me both, brother. (laughs) You and me both. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, and that's by design. Oh yeah. That's by design. Yeah, The most calories in the smallest space for the most pleasure for the least money in the most attractive package. Yeah. And so, Here's how I put it all together, what finally worked for me. I was reading some alternative addiction treatment literature by uh, Jack Trimpey in Rational Recovery. And he works with alcohol and drugs mostly. And it's a very black and white addiction that you can, you can quit entirely. It's not like food where you have to take the lion out of the cage and walk it around the block a few times a day. You yeah. can't stop eating. Yeah. But still, I thought there's something to this. And what I got from his work was that you can't love yourself out of an addiction because you're not just self-medicating. You're not just trying to nurture yourself. Your lizard brain is addicted, and that's the target of the industrial foods. And, and the lizard brain 
doesn't know love. Mm-hmm. Whether you think God put it there or it was evolved, it's the most primitive structure in the brain. And when it looks at something in the environment, it thinks, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. Yeah. There's I, no love there. I used to have an iguana as a, as a pet, and you're 100% right. Those things, lizards have no love for anything. Not even other <laughs> lizards, I don't think. <laughs> so I told- Jay, would you believe I had an iguana as a pet also when I was a kid? <laughs> So we, we both have a similar. Weren't they the greatest story, things, but. though? They're, they're, you know, you've got a little dinosaur that you can sit on your shoulder, and but that's all it can do. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. about it. It wasn't a great way to get girls. It was, it was when people started dating. It wasn't a really great way to get girls. They got a little grossed out by it. No, no, wasn't. live and learn. <laughs> yeah. So there's no love in the lizard brain. There's also no concern for tribe or family. There's no concern for spirituality or music or art or creativity or contribution to society it's or, or your long-term plans for that matter your your diet and exercise plans there's no there's no concern for that no it's just eat made or kill and so th- this is why you can do all the work to read a diet book and commit over the weekend and then on monday morning you're online at starbucks and there's the big hairy chocolate bar at the counter and as you're getting closer you hear this voice in your head that says you know chocolate grows from a cocoa bean and that grows down a plant and so chocolate's really salad (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) and for some reason it makes sense yeah so to an extent anyways yeah i mean if you're yeah if you're that uh i mean i know i get hyper dedicated to to trying different diets and things and i did the ketogenic diet for for 90 days straight like hardcore vegan ketogenic and I didn't eat any, I I saw all the things and I had those same thoughts, you know, I was like, oh, you could probably, you know, just do one day, have a little chocolate bar, have some 90% dark chocolate. It's only got three grams of sugar in it. And I'm like, "Mm." and then, you know, it's those same thoughts, but I really had to struggle and fight through all that. So I totally, I totally understand where that comes into play. Dude, vegan ketogenic is hardcore. That's a hard diet to do. Oh. You're telling me, but it's become just an integrated part of my life now, and I love it, and I, I wouldn't do anything else. Um, and I'm telling you, though, Great. I highly value those uh, treat days. And the, people call it a cheat day, but I call it a treat day because it actually kind of is part of the diet regimen that you should allow yourself like a little something-something once in a while, not to be like so strict. But for that 90 days, I did go all the way super strict, and now you know I'll have a, a, a little something now and then but uh it's a re- it's a really good point and i i'm of the same philosophy i i think that you should design your food rules and your everyday diet in a way that you can live with indefinitely and you can design i would say there's the bullseye but then there are the rings around the bullseye also and there are certain times when you don't necessarily aim for the bullseye or it's okay with you if you don't hit it yeah and there are other times when you're really strict about aiming for the bullseye um, I think uh, for a lot of people, it comes down to flavor and variety as well. So I'm doing a lot of dark, leafy greens, lots of kale, spinach, broccoli, and things like that. Everything is, is a dark, dark green something of a vegetable that I'll either steam or boil or, or fry it up every day. It's the same meal every day. I've got 30 bags in my freezer prepared, and it's so simple. And for me, I can do that. Uh, I had a friend who started this with me, 
and she couldn't do it. Like she got like a month in is like, I can't do it. I need flavor. I need variety. I, I need to just, uh, and it, the, the need for something else overwhelmed the whole, the whole project. And I mean, it was just an, ex, it was just an experiment to try this for 30 days. And for me, after the month was up, I was like, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to go, I'm going to go 60 days and then 90 days. And, but for my friend, it, it was just so overwhelming that she just couldn't, she couldn't continue doing it. And I think a lot of people are, are like that, you know, they, because we've, it, it's been designed into our life to have so much variety and have so many different flavors and things like that. So for someone like me, I, well, I, wait, I'm kind of, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead, finish. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say for someone like me, uh, I don't mind doing something as boring as that and repetitive. I don't have the greatest uh, taste buds. Uh, you know, I, I taste sweet, salty and sour and that's about the only three taste buds on the back of my tongue so to to do a crazy diet like this it works for me so i understand that these kind of things don't work for everybody yeah yeah it makes sense i i think that people are addicted to the stimulation We, we live in a world where there's um you know constant presentation of super size stimuli all over the place yeah i mean walk into a movie theater and it's so loud and the coming attractions come on and you know, they're booming and buzzing and there's an airplane crashing and there's a, you know, really attractive man or an attractive woman and just constant <laughs> supersized stimulation and then everything you eat is injected with all these cytotoxins and concentrations of starch and salt, sugar and oil and oh, yeah. people are used to that as a distraction from present, just like a presence of mind and, and being like it's, you know, used to be okay to just sit. It yeah. Used to be okay, and it's becoming less and less so over, over the years. Yeah. So, like, my my dad lives on a farm out in the country, and there's a lot of just sitting. You know, there's there's not always a, a television running and all the stimulus and everything. A lot of just sitting in a rocking chair, looking out at a field. You know, and that could be a Saturday evening. So I, I've I've definitely been through that. But I also, uh, you know, from also living in a city, have felt. Going from a city to that, it's relaxing for a few days, and then you know, a, a month into this, you're just like, "Oh God, I need something. I need <laughs> some entertainment. Like somebody, somebody just come over and visit or something." And yeah. uh, uh, also, just to relate that back to something else, uh, I worked in marketing a little bit in my early years, and definitely, and I so I see kids in stores throwing little tantrums and their parents are freaking out at them and they can't understand what the hell's wrong with this kid. Why is he freaking out? And it's like these colors have been specifically figured out which ones are going to mess with your little kid brain or even adult brains. Uh, The color to the fluorescent light, the packaging, the layout on the packaging, all of this stuff is influencing us. And it's shooting uh, these almost beams of energy at us to make us want and want and want and desire. And so when you bring a child into that environment, you're just asking for trouble. A, a yeah. child who hasn't, you know, developed yet, who can't see these things. And I mean, I recommend everyone should go and take a marketing course so they can understand what's being blasted at our psyches every day. Just riding the bus, uh, walking down any street, the billboards everywhere and the signs. It's, it's all the same kind of shit happening. So I, I, looked, I looked at a study... Couple of years ago, that was examining the content of the advertising messages about food um, that our children were exposed to. 
and, and an adult. And there's something between the average adult sees like five to 7,000 messages per year about food. And the percent of them that's about eating like whole, fresh, right, raw plant foods is virtually nil. Right. It's, it's, all, it's all about industrial food. So we're being constantly programmed right. to believe that the stuff is food that isn't really food. Right. Which is not to say people can't eat them. Like, like if you're not struggling with it and you don't mind passing some of that stuff through your body and right. you know, everybody chooses their poison. And right. I'm totally okay with that. And I, my, my program is totally diagnostic. So I support people to eat however they, they want to eat. Yeah. What, yeah. It's like once, once in a while, this kind of stuff is okay. But I know I, I have friends and family who are fast food and uh, microwave TV dinners every night of the week. And it's yeah. like, and you look at them and it's like, okay, you've got diabetes, you've got an obesity problem, uh, people are having heart attacks and heart issues. And it's like, this could erectile all... Erectile dysfunction, don't forget that. <laughs> erectile dysfunction. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it all is all tied together. So, and, and, and but a lot then, of that is reversible. A lot of that, well, not, not the heart attack, but right. the cardiovascular risk is reversible. Right. A lot of it is anyway. Diet reversible. Yeah. Yeah, but how do you even how do you even approach someone like that who is so deeply ingrained? Someone who's like you know in their forties, fifties now at this point, who are like, this is their life, and it's hard to snap someone out of that. Like they have to want to change themselves. You know, a, a lot of the people that come to us are people who've had some medical event, right? Either, I mean, some, sometimes their spouse was fed up and left and. It's usually something serious. So some doctor warns them about they're pre-diabetic or they've got syndrome X or something like that, or or they have to have an operation and the doctor says they can't have the operation unless they lose fifty pounds. But you know, people people are often loath to um, make a change until they're really desperate to make a change, and it's it's a problem because you could have so much more in life if you just change the way that you're eating. And you're not going to miss it as much as you think that you will, because there's a phenomenon called down-regulation and up-regulation. So if you have a chocolate bar every day, your taste buds are going to be less and less sensitive for the taste of sweet. So for example, if you live underneath the subway, and I used to live underneath the subway in, in graduate school, you'd think you'd never be able to sleep, but after about a week, you don't hear it. Yeah. Yeah, I lived near an, an airport. When, it was the when same you get thing. a supersized stimulus, an extremely loud noise like that, the brain can adapt so that you can go on with your day-to-day life and pay attention to what you need to pay attention to and you know have the rest of your biological restorative functions continue to work. It's the same thing with food. So you down-regulate, and you can down-regulate to the point that you don't like fruit and vegetables and that you feel like you need the chocolate in order to feel normal. Like every bone in your body says, you know, give me the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. Like I, I can't survive without that. I have to have that chocolate bar every day. Right. But feelings aren't facts because <laughs> there's also a phenomenon called upregulation. And if you stop overstimulating your taste buds with the concentrated forms of, of sugar and, and all the other things too, then within a matter of weeks, your taste buds start to become more sensitive. And all of a sudden, you're going to start to taste the subtleties of flavor and the different fruits and vegetables that... Um, you know, an apple is going to taste a lot sweeter. So your lizard brain is going to say that you're going to feel deprived forever. This is going to be depressing. There's no other pleasure in life. You need this to survive. 
but it's not true. Feelings aren't facts. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, some people are only 100 hours from freedom. Your, your whole body chemistry changed. Your blood chemistry, your body's chemistry, your ability to begin to taste things you didn't taste before. In about 100 hours, everything changes. So you could feel dramatically different 100 hours from now. You might be only 100 hours from freedom. But most people won't go that long because they're so convinced that they can't live without it. Yeah. Uh, my friend just did... Do you want me a... to tell you what I did to... Oh, go ahead. ...to fix this in myself? Yeah, definitely. So, so your body will upregulate uh, once you stop overstimulating the, the taste buds with um, the supersized stimuli. Right. Would you like me to tell you what I did to fix this? Do you want to know how I started to wake up and, and get out of this? Yes, for sure. For sure. So... When I walked away from the alternative edition literature and my understanding of the lizard brain and how it was being targeted by food industry was this idea that I was wrong-headed trying to love myself then. I mean, it's good to be compassionate, it's good to work nurture your inner wounded child, but loving yourself out of an addiction just doesn't seem to work because it's targeting the lizard brain. And so what, what alcoholics were doing to successfully recover had to do with separating their mind in two parts. There was their lizard brain and everything else, and they started to understand that if they treated their lizard brain in much the same way that an alpha wolf treats a challenger for leadership, like it's the alpha wolf that's in charge of the pack, and the challenger has to stay in line or it's going to get in a lot of trouble with the alpha wolf. It's a take-no-prisoners approach. It's more like a step-out-of-line-and-I'll-kill-you approach than a, you know, or you poor one child kind of thing. Mm -hmm. If I did that, if I could draw some clear lines, make some really bright lines to define healthy versus unhealthy eating, and I could hear the voice of my lizard brain, like the rationalizations that were coming through that suggested that it was okay to break the, the rules, then maybe I'd be able to wake up and get those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to make the right decision. And so this is the embarrassing part because I'm you know, I'm a sophisticated psychologist and I've done millions of dollars of research and I've got all these years of training and thousands of patients and everything like that. But in the end, what I did was I said, well, okay, I think I'm not going to have chocolate during the week. Let's just see if I can do that. So I said, I will never eat chocolate Monday to Friday again. Never eat chocolate Monday to Friday again, which is a rule as opposed to a guideline and I'll tell you why that's important later. Okay. And I said, Chocolate itself during the week is pig slop. If I hear anything in my head that suggests that I should have chocolate, like, you know, chocolate is a vegetable, or you work out really hard, or you could start the silly rule tomorrow, that would be pig squeal. <laughs> and when I heard the pig squeal, I'd say, well, I don't eat pig slop. I'd say, that's pig slop, and I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Right. And as, as ridiculous and as embarrassing as that is, it started to wake me up. Not, it wasn't a miracle. I, I had to work with it for a while, but I'd have these experiences where I no longer felt powerless. I suddenly felt hopeful and enthusiastic, and you know, I would walk out of the Starbucks without that chocolate bar. Hmm. And then since the chocolate led to my binging, I wasn't binging more later. It was all because I said, I, I don't want that my pig does. That's pig squeal. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Right. Now, now what about the weekend when the weekend came around? Because you said Monday to Friday, well, is this, does it just... Well, this, this turns out to be very different for different people. Okay. So I'd say about 
70% of my clients are able to institute these type of conditional rules. And then sometimes they'll have a limit for what they'll do on the weekends. So they'll say, I'll have only one bar on Saturday and one bar on Sunday. These are just examples. Right. Other people, and I, I'm in this latter camp, for other people, never is a lot easier than sometimes. And so they'll just say, we'll, we will just say, well, I'll never, I'll never eat chocolate again. I'm quitting chocolate because I've, I've tried six ways to Sunday to control it and I just can't. So I'm happier without it. Um, right. Interestingly, by the way, you have more success rather than saying that I'm quitting chocolate. You, you have more success saying, well, I'm, I'm the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate. If you define it as part of your character mm-hmm. rather than something you're being deprived of, it seems to be a lot stronger. Right. It's so almost like your identity. You get to almost boast about it, you know. Oh no, I don't eat that stuff. Um, and it's interesting yeah, that well, you, you, it's interesting you said the pig the pig slop idea because that's how I got off of eating all this garbage. Uh, I didn't say pig slop. I said it's all plastic. So like even today, as I'm walking through the gro- grocery store, you know, and I'm seeing all this packaging and all these delicious looking things, and I just I'm going, eh, that's all plastic. You don't want to put plastic in your body. It'll probably cause cancer somewhere down the line. Yeah, and that, that's the thing. You know, you you're rebranding what's inside the package as something disgusting, which which definitely it's what worked for me as well. So it's interesting that it's, that it's a toxic analogy. I, I'm so glad to hear that, and it, yeah. I, I do hear those kind of stories a lot. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Um, geez, and like what you're so saying, I, I, what you're saying before about like how uh, it how like these sugar things are, are will kind of plateau after a while. They, they'll bring you, you need them just to be at, at a zero level for your day. Yes. I find yes. it was the same thing with coffee. And I was noticing that, you know, like I was waking up in the morning going like, Oh, I need a coffee. And like, I don't like that feeling of needing anything. I think I'm whole and complete as a person and I don't need all this extra stuff added. I mean, I know you need some food to survive and, narrowing it down to a small bag of vegetables every day it's worked out pretty good so that feeling of i need this just to get to a zero level that wasn't working so it took a it took about a month to like try and really cut back on the coffee and now i drink it as a special treat once in a while when i know i don't have anything to do tomorrow yeah living with that monkey on your back is just not a way to live no no it's not no yeah it's when you think, let's just go back to the point about developing character. And, yeah. and giving up things is not the only kind of rule you can make. You could say that I always have six servings of fruit and vegetables per day, or I always put my fork down between bites. You can create rules that support mindfulness, or I, you know, I, I always take five deep breaths before I go back for seconds, or I never eat in front of the TV. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> there are all different types of rules you can create. So like when, identity. I'm I'm taking some notes here today. I've got my pen and, and paper pretty much full so far. Oh, good. I'm so glad. This is good. I'm so glad. I'm I'm very passionate about this because it solved the desperate problem for me after 30 years. And um, you know, I, I was so surprised. I didn't realize how much other people were going to resonate with it. But we've got 600,000 readers now, and it's crazy. It just kind of took off. That's amazing. Um, it's my my favorite thing I ever do with my life is to talk about this stuff. So what I wanted to say, Jay, was that character trumps willpower. Character trumps willpower. Willpower is a fatigable muscle. It's not like an on and off switch. It's more like gas in the tank. And what burns down your willpower 
is the necessity to make decisions. Not just food decisions, by the way. You find that people have trouble resisting marshmallows if you make them do math problems beforehand. But, <laughs> by, and, and, but any, any kind of decision. And this is why by the end of the day, if you were so dedicated to what you were going to eat in the morning and you get home at night and you just can't take it anymore and you, you make the wrong decision. But character trumps willpower. There are some things which eliminate decisions entirely. For example, if you walk into a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress hasn't seen her tip yet. And she says, I'll be right back. I just have to get your menu. And she goes to get the menu and you notice that there's no window and there's nobody up front and nobody would see you take the $20 bill and the waitress wouldn't even know it. Do you take that bill? Myself? Did you do it, Jay? Myself? No, yeah. I don't. Uh, no, I couldn't do that. I know a lot of How people. Come? I know a lot of people who would. Because well, it probably. Why would you do it? I don't know. I don't know why. I, I'm just an honest. Most people I ask, uh, most people I ask say it's because they're not a thief. That that waitress worked hard for her money. And as a matter of principle or a matter of character, it doesn't fit with their identity to steal the money from the waitress. Yeah, they, and, they work hard all day. Yeah, I, yeah, there's many layers to it, I suppose. Um, but it, it would mostly come back to the waitress. It wouldn't be. I wouldn't think about myself, like saying, "Oh, I'm not a thief." I would just be like, "Oh, that girl worked so hard for this," and it wouldn't. I wouldn't sit right with me to take, especially in a job like that. You know, I mean, you, they put up with so much, uh, so much crap from everybody. Not the, it's not the kind of person you are. Yeah, you wouldn't do that. No. Yeah. We we walk around with these definitions of the kind of people that we are, and those definitions protect us from having to make difficult decisions that would wear down our willpower, cause us to burn brain glucose and have trouble making decisions later because of the kind of people that we are. And all it really is, is a rule in disguise. We're making all kinds of rules in disguise. I, I, I don't kick policemen in the touch. <laughs> I don't walk out. I don't do that. Why? why? Because I'm a law-abiding citizen. That's the kind of person I am. Yeah. I don't walk up to attractive strangers on the street and kiss them. No. Why? Because it's just not the kind of person I am. So I'm just the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate. Period. End of story. I don't have to think about it. All right. No more decisions to be made. To be made. And right. suddenly it's easy. Then suddenly my pig stops squealing constantly because there's no hope for it. And it's like like a prisoner that had a life sentence. There's no hope. And character trumps willpower. The mm -hmm. the mental obsession lifts, and you can go on with your life. Now, do you, do you think that there are too many options these days for food choices? And do you think that affects our poor decision making because we're overwhelmed with so much, so many options in our face that you're just like, ah, oh, I can't do with this. I can't deal with this right now. And you just use your go to. So rather than buy the, I don't know, the, the cornflakes, you're going to buy the sugar, sugar thing that you always buy because just there's just too many options and you're looking at everything. Do you think that is, oh, God, yeah. is a part of it? Like, oh, but yeah. maybe, maybe even by design? Decisions all day long. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's also a biological drive for variety in order to get a variety of nutrients. And the food industry takes advantage of that by, um, you know, simulating variety in, in so many ways. And there really is, there is variety without the nutrients. And that actually makes you want to eat more because you your brain thinks that you got the variety but it's not sensing the nutrients so it's trying to 
you know, ramp up the variety seeking, and then you have to make more decisions. That they're really vicious circle. Right now, um, circle. now there's only there's only like three or four companies. Let, just let's look at cereal. There's only three or four companies that even make cereal, and the sugary stuff at the bottom. Um, you know, it's cheaper to make. It's a lot of filler. It's a lot of corn and and wheat and nasty other nasty things in it. So, do you think that it's also by design? And I'm looking at it from a conspiracy conspiracy kind of point of view that they would do that on purpose because they want to sell more and they know they can sell more of this crap if people just get overwhelmed and want to just go back to the, the buying the garbage. Yeah, I I don't even know if it's so much of a conspiracy. I I don't know that it's even so much of a secret. Hmm. With with meetings behind closed doors, I'm not really paranoid like like that. What what I think it is though, I think the market wants it. They've discovered that if they press these evolutionary buttons, that people will buy more and they'll demand more. And the you know more calories they put into a smaller space um, for the less money, the more they can sell. And the market wants more, and people vote with their feet. So I don't know that it's conspiracy. Conspiracy. I think the economic incentives are not aligned for health. I think, um, who was it? I can't remember the guy's name. The Prime Minister of England during World War II. Churchill, Winston Churchill, right. said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. So, unfortunately, one of the side effects of a capitalistic democracy is that there's not really enough regulation on the companies and they don't have an incentive to optimize for health. Their incentive is really to optimize for profits and mm-hmm. unfortunately people don't naturally want what's best for them wanting what's best for you is more of a function of a mature intellect than a than the level of animalistic impulse to which the company market so yeah i mean i, th- I think because I, I was on that side of the thing and it's really hard if you don't give if you don't give the customer more than what they're getting at the competitor in terms of the fat and salt sugar and starch it's then, you know, you're, you're going to go out of business. So there, there's a real pressure, and I, I, don't, I don't entirely know how we solve it. I think that the only answer is to, I think people do need to take personal responsibility. I think that it requires some work. I think that, um, you know, until we have more regulations that limit the levels of these substances that can go into the food, I, I not necessarily fault the corporations. Companies are going to make money the way that they can make money. It's just yeah, just what they do. Geez, so. my friends and family will not even go shopping with me anymore because I'm the guy reading all the ingredients and the labels and everything, and checking checking how many carbs and how much sugars and everything. And I'm always pointing out. I'm like, look, look at this. Look what you're paying for. First ingredient, yep. wheat. What what are we? What even is it? Oh, look, it's it's popsicles. Why is there wheat in the popsicles? You know, silly things like right. that. You're I, like, I, how how are they? Using- I think there's even some there's some type of flavored cardboard that's allowed in the food system. I forget where it is. <laughs> the McDonald's hamburgers, it's, it's, I think. <laughs> it's like actually flavored cardboard going going to the food system, and um, yeah, people start. And that's why it doesn't really work to intuitively eat everything. That's why because like if you lived on the savanna, if we were living a hundred thousand years ago and we were on the savanna. And you ask yourself what you felt like eating. You could trust your body. Mm-hmm. You could trust that you intuitively eat. But you, you, we don't live on the savannah. There's all these artificial things, and they're so well engineered. It's kind of like saying intuitive smoking. You know, I, I, I just smoke when I want to, and it, no, you're you're addicted. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So yeah. yeah. No. Um. Geez, the newest thing that just came up in in life for me, and I tried it because uh, from being vegan, anyways, I just I wanted to try the option. Is these new Beyond Burgers? If you guys have those uh, where you live, A and W. What we do in Portland? A and W restaurant uh, has kind of strictly is the only ones who sell it here in Canada. And but you can go online to beyondmeat.com or whatever, and you can order pounds of this stuff. And so what this is is there's like a plant protein that they have found a way to grow it in a way to simulate kind of like the fatty, meaty structure that you'll get in a fast food burger. So it's not like a real hamburger, but it's like a real fast food burger is what it's, it's, it simulates. And so I, I decided to try it one day. And so I convinced some friends, like, we got to try it. And I threw all, uh, all my carb regulations out the door. I know there's gluten in it. I know there's, there's other things that are probably in it for the flavor and everything and MSGs and all that. And I said, I'm having, I'm having a real treat day today. So we all stopped at A&W and we each ordered one of these burgers and you know, I've been vegan for so long now, like three or four years, and it was just like, oh my God, this hit every spot on the mark, wow. bringing me back to like, you know, those unhealthy days when I would eat this kind of crap weekly. And I'm just like, wow, and this is just made out of plants. And um, I went back two hours later to get another one. That's how good it was. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> and at $12 a burger, $12 for a burger, because it's a new hip trendy thing that's, that's just starting. Yeah. It's a bit pricey, you know, to, to try and, and eat even something that's healthier than the alternative of what they're, they're selling there. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see when, when the prices start to go down to see if other people will even try it. Because as it stands, not too many I mean, they sold out, actually. They sold out. It's been sold out for a month now before they'll get any more of it back in, in the, the province that I live in. And uh, But uh, and everyone who I try and convince, I'm like, oh, you got to try the Beyond Burger. And they're like, oh, 12 bucks? No way. I want the $1.75 Mama Burger or whatever else the other options are there. So uh, I think that, yeah, prices, as the prices go down, I think we'll find a lot more people making healthier choices once... It's more available. Hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I, I do think there's hope. I, I do feel like there's a larger proportion of the population that's demanding organic, and people are very slowly moving away from, you know, the processed industrial foods to more whole foods, and there's, there's more of a knowledge that at least that's the direction you want to go in, and mm. we should be having more plants, even if we're not vegan or vegetarian, at least people know they're supposed to be having more plant food, and the evidence is starting to be really overwhelming now. So I, I think there's hope. I'm not a, I'm not a fatalist. But. <laughs> what do you think about this uh, carnivore diet that is becoming all the rage? Well, I, I'm a vegan too. So I'm, I'm actually raw vegan. And I, I, there's a, I have to hesitate when I say this because I know there are a lot of people out there that, um, really want to eat a heavy meat diet and they really believe it's part of our natural evolution and I don't think they look carefully at the science when they do that I don't I don't think there's anything about our anatomy that suggests that we're supposed to we're supposed to eat meat right Um, I I, I always tell people okay take a piece of raw meat crank your thermostat up to 98 degrees leave it on the kitchen counter open for four days and tell me what you think especially (laughs) a piece of fish 
Because <laughs> that, that's what's happening in your body. Yeah. It, it takes about four days for a lot of that stuff to get through you. Oh, wow. We're, we're designed with a much longer you know, set of intestines than the carnivores are and different types of, you, you know, all the arguments. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not, I'm not really happy about the, the carnivore diets. I think it's a mistake. I think all the evidence is starting to suggest that, um, then, you know, meat stimulates the production of IGF-1 and then that stimulates inflammation and that causes cancer. Right. I think there's more and more evidence about it. But it's just it's just interesting that there's these proponents who are like really pushing it these days and they're claiming that they're having all these benefits from it, from just completely cutting out all fruits and vegetables and only like having meat only. Which and I'm just like it baffles my mind to think that you would try and like sell that as a, a viable option for, for everyone. And, and I mean, well, if it works for you, for- don't try and push it on everyone because I know that some people have certain like issues in their body that, yeah, it worked great. How long is it going to work for? I, a big part of the problem, I think, is that people are not trained to think scientifically and they don't know how to evaluate a scientific study. So there is a lot of junk science out there. The public really wants to hear that it's okay to eat things that they really want to eat. Mm. And so the journalists and editors and TV show recruiters are always looking for something that's going to give the public a message that they really want to hear. Right. And you combine those three, it's like the perfect storm. Um, you know, if you if you got a bunch of PhDs who were trained in the scientific method and had them evaluate every study before you could, you know, put it out on the on the on the newswire, then I think we'd be in a different situation. But um, yeah, it's scary. Amazing. You know what? You know what, Jay? When you and I are running the world, things will be different. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I don't know. My motto is "Do what you want, as long as you're not hurting anyone." And I mean, that comes down yeah. to animals as well for me personally. Um, uh, ahimsa, right? Ahimsa. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, geez, where did... Tolerate all ways of life that tolerate all other ways of life, but don't become so tolerant that you tolerate intolerance. <laughs> exactly. Um, what was the funny thing that I had heard once? Abstain, abstain, abstain until there's nothing left to abstain from except abstinence itself, in which case oh. you, you start over. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Freaking I, me out, man. I don't know if I like Freaking that me one. Out. A little too deep for me. Um, yeah. Geez. I'm looking at your list of... Uh, uh, publishing here that uh, was sent to me. So like uh, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Sun-Times, Indiana Star-Ledger, New York Daily News, American Demographics, ABC, CBS, uh, UPN TV, and many more. Like what um, what kind of things do you get published in these? In these? You know, a, a lot of it was a while ago. Okay. Uh, some of it came from that study that we did. Right. A lot of it came from the days when I was in marketing and I was... Um, demonstrating certain research methodologies. Okay. I, I used to do national surveys on health issues and publish the results. And then I found that the press really likes a doctor plus statistics. That's a really good formula for publicity. Right. So like two sources of authority together and everything I would say would be backed up by, you know, a national stratified random survey. And, and um, so it was, it was those types of things starting, um, Starting all the way back about what people thought about the low fat craze, I think. So. Hmm. Some, and, some of it had nothing to do with with health. Some of it, I, a long time ago, I wrote a wrote an article about your money personality. I came up with all these crazy things like buy me Betty's and urge to splurge. And, 
Um, <laughs> and I got a lot of press for that kind of pop psychology kind of thing. So. Okay. Um, yeah, I had I had heard some or read some things about how the sugar industry is really the one who made this like uh, tried to put make fats seem like they were a lot less healthy. And as someone who's been living strictly on uh, high fat and no car- low carbs, low to no carbs, um, and I mean now I'm finding I'm like wow, so fat has three times more energy than sugar does. So I understand yeah. where the sugar industry would have maybe not maybe not hired scientists to say this but maybe they found scientists who were already saying this and were like hey this guy's saying what we like and let's th- throw him some money yes. to keep saying it yeah. and, and i'm not saying that that you know they they completely just paid off doctors and scientists to say this stuff but um have, have you heard of that before i mean is that like is that like a real thing i mean this is just something i had read about you, you mean that like that, back, I think it was like in the fifties or something, fifties, sixties, where, where people are being paid off to to say things. I'm sure it happened. To, to say things, yeah, to say that like, um, you know, like oh, eggs give you cholesterol, and any fat at all is bad for you. And oh, but here, eat this sugary snack. This is good stuff. Right, right. Well, what what you have to do is look at the funding for any particular step. Yeah. You know, a lot of the funding comes from corporations that want the results to come out a particular way. Right. And it's so it's so easy to, I mean, to, to just look at surveys. You get called on the phone, and jeez, uh, in Canada, the government hires companies to do these surveys on behalf of the government, and and they're so leading, the way the questions are worded. Like I've done a few of them, and the, they word things, you know, in a way that doesn't matter how you answer, it's going to push things statistically to the way that they want the final outcome to be, no matter what. And, yeah. Uh, I feel that it's the same uh, with with food and all this. Um, geez, we're getting near to an hour now, and I want you to talk about your book. So it's called Never Binge Again. Yeah, and neverbingeagain.com. Neverbingeagain.com. Well, that, that's my website. You, you can get a free copy of the book at neverbingeagain.com for um, Kindle, Nook, or PDF. And what, what the book is, it's a... The end of my story is that I spent about eight years keeping a journal of me versus my pig. And I listened to all the different things that the pig was saying, and I figured out where the lies were in them, and and I beat it. You know, I, I lost lost about 50 pounds, and I got my blood levels down, I stopped obsessing about food, and I got really healthy. And I never, ever intended to publish it. I really thought it was just a private journal. Right. But... Uh, whole bunch of business deals kind of came together and someone asked me if I put it on Amazon and this is what happened. <laughs> um, so, so if you go to neverbingeagain.com, you can get a copy of that. It outlines the system as a whole. It's written as a creative allegory, so it's not so much a scientific book, but a, a persuasive book that's intended to give you power over your most destructive food thoughts. You could read it in a night. It's, okay. um, so, so you can get that for free. There are also paperbacks and audible versions available, but they're, they're a little money. Right. And if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red button, sign up for the reader bonuses, you will also get a set of food plan starter templates. So whether you are ketogenic or vegan or, or paleolithic or however you, you count points, you count calories, whatever it is, there's a set of food plan rules that might be a good starting point for you, right? ask people to take responsibility for their own roles. That's a good starting point. And a whole bunch of other um, things like 
recorded sessions for free so that you understand how this works in practice and you can hear people overcoming their feeling of powerlessness and hopelessness. And um, so on everybinchagain.com. Huh, okay, Big cool. red button. You know what? I think I'm going to throw that into, I do a little commercial at the front of this and it's it's not for uh, sponsors or anything. It's just for stuff that I'm into and stuff that I'm doing. So I had written a, oh. a, a book about meditation recently and it's kind of aimed at uh, a wider demographic than normal meditation books. I find they're always preaching to the choir kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I was walking by a construction site and I had written, I'd written this book already and I hadn't, hadn't done anything with it. And I had re- started as a, a workshop that nobody showed up for that I was like, oh, I'll write this into a book. And then I was like, oh, this is kind of silly. Like it, there's billions of meditation books out there. And um, so I had taught some meditation classes and then I was like walking by a construction site one day and guys were freaking out, throwing hammers at each other. And I was like, man, these are the people who need it the most. Like not, don't be writing with all this Sanskrit words and everything uh, in chants and all this kind of stuff I had in there. I need to like dumb it down. And I don't mean dumb, like, mentally but i mean i just need to bring it down to like the common regular joe you know and throw in some curse words here and there and and really make it more accessible to to more of a wide demographic and uh, yeah so i had written that so that's kind of like one of my commercials at the front but i'm definitely going to throw the neverbingeagain.com what's that book called (laughs) it is called how to calm the fuck down (laughs) (laughs) i love you man (laughs) I gotta go get that book. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll email you I'll email you the, the ebook if you want. You, you know what? Could you? I want to interview you about that book. Yeah. I, I want to put that book on my podcast <laughs> for I, sure. I've, I've got twenty thousand people. I, I want to I want to um put it on my podcast. That would be great. Yeah, for sure. How cool. to calm the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I designed the cover with like you know, it's got like a hard hat and like some plaid and some jean material and then a work boot and things like that and. <laughs> you made my day. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, hey, man, thank you for uh, for being here. This has been great and so informative. Yeah. And yeah, this is great. Thank you. Thank you for having me so much. This was um, just a really great interview. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. That was the shit. I don't know what else to say. My notepad is completely full of notes and scribbles with questions and things like. Six to 10,000 calories per day, a 4,000 person study, pleasure center stimulus, 100 hours to freedom. People get five to 7,000 messages about food every week and character trumps willpower. I need to have these notes printed and framed and put up all around my house. Ladies and gents, that's it for another exciting week here beyond the mat. If these shows get any better, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I think I might start dancing around. And it's a good thing this is an audio only podcast so you can't see my weird raver style dancing that I do. Okay, that's it. Time for the ending catchphrase. Peace, love and light, namaste, and all that other good noise. And we outta here, ding.